Good morning. My name is Chelsea Follett. I'm managing editor of humanprogress.org and a policy analyst here at Cato in the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. And it is my pleasure to introduce today's policy forum on global inequality. Is it increasing or is it decreasing? And what is the best way to measure it? A prominent narrative claims that global inequality is growing as improvements in the standard of living accrue mainly to a small elite, leaving much of the world's population behind and even worse off than before. But is this true? Further confusing matters, many conversations surrounding inequality remain restricted to income inequality. No one doubts that income is important, but is income the best way to capture overall differences in well-being? To address these questions, Vincent, Vincent Geloso and I will discuss our work on a new, more comprehensive way of measuring global inequality, the Inequality of Human Progress Index. And our findings showing that the evidence demonstrates that the world is not only better off than many people appreciate, but that it is also in many ways far more equal. Nicholas Eberstadt will provide comments on how to best assess the true state of global inequality afterwards. Vincent is Assistant Professor of Economics at George Mason University and earned his PhD in Economic History from the London School of Economics. He is also a Senior Fellow at the Fraser Institute in Canada, where he is from, Quebec specifically, and a Senior Fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. He specializes in the measurement of living standards and inequality, both today and in the distant past and in economic history. He has published more than 60 articles in respected academic journals, as well as some 250 opinion pieces in prominent publications such as the Wall Street Journal. Nick is the Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute where he is a renowned expert on demographics, inequality, poverty, social well-being, and economic development, among other things. He has offered invited testimony before Congress on many occasions and has served as an advisor for a variety of units within the US government. His appearances on radio and television range from NPR to CNN's The Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer. He holds a PhD in political economy and government from Harvard University. Vincent will start us off by discussing the ideas and theory underlying the inequality of human progress index, as well as the methodology. Thanks, Chelsea. Is this the correct clicker to use? It is. Okay. Green for forward, red for back. Okay. And how do I switch between slides on this one? There we go. Yep. Okay, so what I'm going to try and argue to you is uh, the justification for this uh, index that uh, Chelsea and I have created. And from the index, I want to give you three important takeaways. So the ones you would want to understand is what the first step of what we do is create the human progress index, and then we'll measure the inequality. But the Human Progress Index is a necessary addition to things that exist already, such as the Human Development Index that is more frequently advanced by organizations like the United Nations, but also uh, talked more by uh, world development groups like the World Bank. Uh, but the index is broader, and it also adds an extra dimension that we, unlike other indices, we are going to give more weight to things that are achievements that are harder to accomplish. The idea being that it's much more impressive to increase life expectancy, say, from 84 to 85 than it is to increase it from 35 to 36. Uh, so we want to give more weight to things that are harder to achieve. Uh, and at the same time, by adding as well more dimensions. So we're going to measure not just things that are usually considered like income, education, and life expectancy, we're also going to increase things like access to information, political freedoms, uh, 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 environmental quality, and the idea being that all these dimensions are dimensions that are philosophically speaking to a deeper point about what is human progress and how do we try and capture it. And most importantly, once we can measure the inequality in this 
uh, in this data, uh, it's gonna speak more precisely about the inequalities we should care so that any improvement that we actually observe are actually strong statements about the world being a fairer place. Okay, so let's just do like a very short recap of what, how we're building up on what's existing. Uh, normally, the, the one that people have heard multiple times being used will have been the Human Development Index. Uh, and it's essentially an aggregation of three components, health, generally life expectancy at birth, income, and education, where generally it's a number of school years that people have accomplished. They're taking an average of those. And the reason why there's a problem, and this is what I'm gonna argue to you, is that there's a problem in doing this is the way they're doing it. So I'm sorry, I'm trying to keep the mathematics to a minimum, uh, even though I enjoy mathematics a lot. But essentially, the, the way you wanna look at this thing here, the equation that I've put on, it's saying that your score on the index for any indicator is going to be the difference between whatever your, your level of life expectancy is, for example, and the minimum we would observe divided by the range we observe over all other countries. But this is saying in that shape that an improvement from 35 to 36 is going to be weighed equally as an improvement from 84 to 85 in terms of life expectancy. Any one of us here would understand that given biological limits that we have, it's much more impressive to increase life expectancy when it's really high than when it's really low. Uh, there's a greater feat of human accomplishment that is uh, realized uh, by this. So just to show you kind of visually what I mean by this, the red line that I've put on the graph here is how we would compare different countries' index values according to life expectancy on the axis at the bottom and what score they would get and you'll notice here that jumping from 20 to 30 on the red line is as impressive as jumping from 70 to 80. Right? You're getting the same increase on the index. But if you actually do a different shape for combining the data, which is the blue line that I've put in, jumping from 20 to 30 doesn't give you that much of a boost on your score, whereas jumping from 70 to 80 receives a greater improvement. So that way we're actually gonna provide a greater weight to improvements that are harder to achieve. So this is the first big feature of the Human Development Index, uh, the Human Progress Index that Chelsea and I developed, is that we want to weigh improvements on human progress uh, more heavily when they're harder to achieve than they are otherwise. Uh, so that's the first thing. The other thing that our index does is uh, we're including more dimensions. So normally uh, the HDI will use only, as I said, income, education, and life expectancy. We're gonna add other stuff uh, like um, uh, access to information, uh, uh, nutrition, uh, or do you live in a liberal democracy, infant survival rates, death from air pollution. We're including all of these. The idea being that what we want to capture is the broadest definition possible of living standard under the usual philosophy that development is not just having more stuff, but it is having more room for agency. So having more choices to make is actually the essence of development, that we have a greater room for choosing what we want to be as individuals. So that's the virtue of the, the HBI is by adding more dimensions, we're capturing the complexity of, of, uh, of richer and more developed societies uh, much more. Uh, oops, why is it? Okay, good. So there is, in what we're doing, there is a greater philosophical depth than with HDI, and that's the part I think is important. Uh, people tend to think and this is particularly consistent in Western societies today where there's a great emphasis on income inequality, income inequality being bad. But if you look at, um, at rich societies, there's a paradox that emerges whereby there's rising income inequality, but there is declining inequality in life satisfaction and in happiness, suggesting that just using income is losing some information in the process over what counts as well-being in rich societies. The example I give 
to my students when I teach the economics of inequality is imagine you, you have a choice. You have you and a Benedictine monk, and you are a financial banker. Uh, the banker has higher income than the monk, and not only that, his income is increasing more than the monk, uh, faster than the, the monk is increasing. But if offered the choice to swap position, they both refuse. That would say there is a society that is highly unequal and growing more unequal, but in reality, both live in a rich, a rich enough society that they're okay with choices that come with income disparities. So just focusing on a measure like income will fail to capture those greater dimensions of well-being that matters to these individuals in different weights. So that's why the HBI, by our Human Progress Index, by bringing in more dimension, tries to capture this fact that with economic development, the synonymity, synonymity between income and well-being falters a bit as you grow richer. So that's the reason why we do this. We're, we're doing the index. But the other part that becomes uh, super important is that when we take the inequality in the Human Progress Index, we are able to create a measure of inequality across the world in develop or in in the measure that most matters to understanding human welfare. So it's not just that we're focusing on a single dimension, but by and, uh, giving more weight the harder to achieve accomplishment, is that when we're able to take inequality, if we're concerned globally about how shared are the improvements in human welfare, uh, we can capture not only how widely shared they are, but in the broadest terms possible in the conceptualization of what people would actually call human progress. That's the reason why we conceived that index. And uh, I'm literally done by now, and I can leave Chelsea the much nicer part. Uh, so you've, I've bored you with the theory uh, and the justification for doing this. And Chelsea gets to do the wow factor that uh, is much more interesting than just the philosophical defense of the index. So Chelsea, I leave it to you. Thank you. And thank you for letting me present the fun part. So now that Vincent has explained the theory and methodology around the inequality of human progress index, I'm going to go over, as he said, our results in detail. As you can see here, the world is more equal today than it was in 1990. Not only is everyone better off, but those improvements are widely shared. And we see this regardless of whether we use the population-weighted or unweighted versions of the inequality measures. To gauge the extent of inequality between people around the world, we applied two different measures of inequality to the HPI, the Human Progress Index. We considered, for each measure, uh, both an unweighted variant that treats each country equally to capture inter-country inequality, and a variant weighted for each country's population to approximate global interpersonal inequality. For each variant, we considered uh, variations including internet access and excluding internet access due to the very large effect of that index component that you can see here. The Human Progress Index with internet access included suggests that inequality initially increased in the early 1990s and then began to fall rapidly. Inequality appears to rise because only a few countries initially uh, gained internet access. However, as internet access spread to other countries, inequality began falling rapidly. And by 2018, inequality was between 35 and 49% lower than it was in 1990. If we only consider the Human Progress Index without internet access, that shows a more muted but still considerable reduction in inequality of between 16 and 22%. These results were largely unchanged whether we used a Gini coefficient, as in the last slide, or the mean log deviation, as you see here. 
the slides are actually nearly identical. Both Gini and mean log deviation, or MLD, are ways of measuring inequality among the values in a distribution. Both represent a situation of perfect equality as a value of zero. The Gini coefficient represents maximal inequality as a value of one, while the MLD takes on larger positive values as incomes become more unequal. So in a world where everyone has the same income, both the MLD and the Gini coefficient of income inequality are zero. The measures are again very similar. They're both commonly used in the literature and some economists have a slight preference for MLD, uh, which may be more sensitive to changes at the bottom of the distribution, but we're agnostic and again, our results appear uh, basically unaffected by which of the two we use. So overall, inequality and well-being has decreased under a variety of specifications. But what does that really mean? As momentous as the global decline in income inequality is, measuring inequality, as Vincent said, beyond income differences is a more direct, comprehensive, and most important, accurate way to measure differences in well-being. The components of our index are life expectancy at birth measured in years, childhood survival, an inverted infant mortality rate per 1,000 live births, a food supply measured in calories per person per day, a safe environment measured by an inverted outdoor air pollution death rate, mean years of schooling, internet users per 100 people, and of course income measured as GDP per person, as well as political freedom measured on a scale from perfect liberal democracy to total autocracy. Across all but two of these dimensions, the world has become more equal since 1990. Let's go over these one by one. Global equality has continuously improved since 1990 for life expectancy, as improvements in health have been widely shared and lives have lengthened around the world. It's hard to emphasize how important this graph is, as life expectancy is arguably the most important measure of well-being. There are, of course, exceptions to every rule. As I mentioned, two indicators within our index display trends toward more inequality. While child mortality has fallen everywhere, child mortality has not fallen faster proportionally in low-income countries than in high-income countries since 1990. Again, infant mortality has fallen globally in absolute terms everywhere in high-income countries and low-income countries. But improvements since 1990 seem to have simply happened proportionally faster in high-income countries, thus increasing inequality. Richer countries have access to the latest medical technologies, such as state-of-the-art neonatal intensive care units that improve survival chances for some of the most vulnerable infants, and thus global inequality seems to have failed to decline across this dimension post-1990. But again, infant mortality is down in absolute terms everywhere. For adequate nutrition, the trend line, as you can see, has been somewhat rocky with a turn toward greater inequality in the early to mid-2000s. Nonetheless, the long-term trend has been one of considerable growth in nutritional equality as access to an adequate diet becomes more and more common around the world. Global equality has continuously improved since 1990 for education, as children in poor countries become more and more likely to be able to access formal schooling for longer and literacy rates spread throughout the world. Global equality has also continuously improved since 1990 when it comes to internet access. And as noted earlier, this change has been incredibly dramatic. By the end of 2021, it is estimated that 22% of the total population in sub-Saharan Africa, the world's poorest region, was using mobile internet. And 40% of sub-Saharan African adults over 18 had access to the internet. 
This improvement in internet access is such that including or excluding internet access from our index makes a big difference in our final results, prompting us to publish both a variation with and without internet access as I showed you in that earlier slide. Environmental safety, as measured by outdoor air pollution deaths, is the other exception where we found that global inequality is actually increasing. And we theorize this may be the result of the working of the environmental Kuznets curve that stipulates that pollution increases with economic growth until a critical point is reached after which pollution starts to fall as a society becomes prosperous enough to devote more attention to environmental stewardship. In this case, the rising inequality in outdoor air pollution globally may reflect the fact that many countries are still undergoing this transition. Developed countries' substantial improvements in environmental quality indicate that we can probably expect developing countries to very likely experience similar gains as they too get richer. Hopefully eventually decreasing inequality on this measure. Equality and enjoyment of political liberty has improved almost continuously since 1990 with a small decrease in equality in recent years. That recent reversal is slight and does not negate the long-term trend of increasingly widespread access to political liberty, but it does remind us that backsliding is possible and of the importance of preserving political liberty. Globally, incomes became more unequal until the mid-2000s, but income inequality has declined since then. But again, we must remember that inequality is multi-dimensional. It is more than income inequality. And thinking about inequality in terms of overall well-being makes far more sense than focusing on income inequality alone, as momentous as the decline in income inequality is. Income is only one, though admittedly important, aspect of well-being. As the economist P.T. Bauer famously noted, the death of a child raises a household's per capita income, a reminder that income and well-being are not the same. Income is ultimately an imperfect proxy for access to many of the things that add up to a high quality of life. Looking beyond that imperfect proxy to directly examine the constituent elements of well-being can help to avoid such contradictions. Worries about inequality are on the upswing, suggesting widespread confusion regarding the direction in which inequality is trending. According to Harvard University psychologist Steven Pinker, the share of New York Times articles mentioning inequality increased tenfold between 2009 and 2016. In addition, Google's Ngram viewer shows a clear rise in the frequency with which the word inequality appears in English language printed sources, starting around 1955 and continuing through 2019, the most recent year for which we have data, as you can see here on this slide. Beliefs about inequality matter because they can have real world consequences. A 2023 Oxfam report titled Survival of the Richest, addressing a purported rise in global inequality, calls for a 5% tax on the world's multimillionaires. Oxfam has also proposed government action, taking on monopoly power and boosting workers' rights in their words, as well as major tax increases on income and wealth to fight what Nabil Ahmed, Oxfam America's Director of Economic Justice, calls the world's explosion of inequality. More than 200 millionaires, including entertainment empire heiress Abigail Disney and actor Mark Ruffalo, similarly called on 2023's Davos attendees to tackle extreme wealth and tax the ultra-rich, 
to counter allegedly widening inequality. All policies come with trade-offs, and many of the proposed policies meant to take on supposedly growing inequality risk increasing bureaucracy, impeding economic growth, slowing poverty's global decline, decreasing the rate of innovation and technological progress, infringing on privacy, and other negative effects. Moreover, a cool-headed assessment of gaps in global well-being shows that such policies would be based on a misapprehension. The popular narrative of rising inequality is mistaken. Now over to Nick, who will share further insights on how to best assess the true state of global inequality. Thank you. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be back here with my friends at Cato. I am a big fan of the human progress project, and I want especially to salute uh, Chelsea and Vincent on this pioneering paper. It's a creative, important start to exploring a whole new area, just the beginning. I hope it inspires and encourages others to join this exploration because it's, I think, tremendously promising. Uh, I was a student of uh, P.T. Bowers, uh, later Lord Peter Bower, back in the 1970s, and I remember very well uh, his comparison in our classes between the uh, apparent economic result of the birth and death of a calf and the birth and death of a child. Uh, Professor Bower was not a big fan of the word uh, inequality. Uh, it kind of spank us if we use that. He said that we should focus on differences or on dispersions, but uh, leave that as it may. What he said the great importance of development could offer was the extension of human choice, as you mentioned this morning. And people who have as different a perspective on the world as uh, P.T. Bauer and his uh, student Amartya Sen both commonly agree that the extension of human choice is the ultimate purpose of development. Now, income is an important instrument in the extension of human choice, but it is far from the only one that might be of interest to us. So let me go through some other indicators which I would argue bear directly on the extension of human choice and the distribution of human choices in the world. Um, let's start with health. Um, it's not always uh, apparent in reading uh, daily commentary in the internet or in the press, but Humanity has enjoyed an absolutely extraordinary explosion of health over the past two centuries. And the boundary for uh, improvements in health, as measured by life expectancy at birth, has steadily increased since the 1840s. As you can see in this chart here, from some of the work by the late James Vaupel and colleagues. The remarkable thing to me in this chart is that the best-in-class country in the world uh, over a period of about 180 years uh, changes from one decade to the next. But the best-in-class country has increased its life expectancy at birth by about one week per month for almost two centuries. Um, we have not hit the limits to life expectancy yet. Uh, and uh, consequently, we've had an extraordinary explosion in life expectancy all around the world. Uh, what we refer to as a population explosion is actually driven by this health explosion. Uh, it's not that people are uh, suddenly breeding like rabbits, it's that they finally stopped dying like flies. And you can see from this table 
uh, just how true this is all around the world. If you look at this table, you'll see that a very important difference is closing between rich countries and poor countries, and that is the difference in life expectancy at birth, in your very basic life chances. I want to show you how the distribution of lifespans has changed in one country for which we have long-term records, which is Sweden. What I show here in this chart from the Human Mortality Database is the number of persons per 100,000 who die at any given year of life. The blue line is for Sweden back in the 1750s, and that blue line doesn't even go all the way back to zero because the figure for one-year-olds would be, infant mortality would be far off that chart. Um, but you can see what that distribution looked like. Now compare it to, uh, compare it to Sweden more recently in the, uh, in the uh, 2019 period, you'll see that it's a much less dispersed uh, distribution of life chances. And if you want to use the Gini coefficient, which I do here just because people are familiar with it, you can see what this means for Sweden over time. The, uh, the higher the life expectancy, the lower the inequality, if you'll use that word, of distribution of life chances. It's, uh, it's, an it's not quite, but it's almost a mechanical and linear uh, progression. Now here's, uh, here are some correspondences from countries all around the world taken over the post-war uh, period. Life expectancy versus the Gini coefficient for dispersion of years, years of death. It's almost exactly the same slope as what you saw for Sweden over a 250-year period. If you take that trend and you impose it on the world as a whole and fill in a couple of hypotheticals, you get a very interesting result. We think that the world's uh, life expectancy around the year uh, 1900 was about 30. We know that the world's life expectancy around the year 2000 was a little bit over 65. What this probably means is that the inequality in dispersion of age at death had dropped by about two-thirds over the course of our century. And it's dropped even further, as Vincent and Chelsea show in their paper since then. So I think what we really might see as the very most basic inequality in the human condition has radically diminished as life expectancy has radically improved over the past number of generations. Um, we've also had an education explosion. If you measure education in terms of years of schooling attained for individuals, that obviously does not deal with the question of quality of schooling. That's for another time. But this shows a population pyramid with age, sex, and educational attainment as estimated by a wonderful project, the Wittgenstein Center in Human Capital and Demography. That red center would be the uh, proportion of the population in 1950 and in 2020 with no education at all. That blue fringe in the bottom one, which basically doesn't exist in the top uh, pyramid, is the proportion of people with higher education. We've had an extraordinary increase in education and in years of schooling, much faster than the increase in the number of people on Earth. And if you do the same sort of chart as I did previously, the, uh, comparing the uh, Gini coefficient for distribution of schooling in various countries with uh, the mean years of schooling for adults, you get a similar curve around the world. Um, different in different regions of the world, but clearly the trend, uh, the Gini coefficient trend is downward. More schooling means less unevenness in years of schooling for adult populations all around the world. Um, now, um, Vincent and Chelsea found that income inequality around the world was increasing in the 1990s, and I'm not going to go uh, hammer and tongs on this. 
I do wish, however, to mention that income inequality across the world is a more difficult thing to measure accurately than uh, years of life or even years of schooling. And some, some fairly formidable economists like Javier Salah E. Martin has argued that actually uh, even income inequality was declining over the course of the 1990s and into the early 2000s. Uh, I just mean to flag that, not to start a controversy. Uh, inter international measures of income are a pretty, uh, pretty, serious, uh, pretty serious and challenging matter. Now, you all have, I think, enough work on your plate for probably the next couple of lifetimes. But I want to measure a couple, I want to mention a couple of things that may be of interest to our audience and may be of interest to future researchers just to think about. Because I don't think, my impression is uh, we're only in the very beginning stages of even trying to understand how we should think about some of these things. One of these is the biological revolution in, that human beings have undergone during the process of global economic development. This is, uh, I'm mentioning here, work by the late Nobel laureate uh, Robert William Fogel. Um, he showed that over the period since 1700, using his wonderful Waller curves, that uh, human beings have become taller and heavier and their capabilities have increased. Human, human capabilities have increased. And one of the most controversial, but not necessarily unimportant areas here has to do with cognitive uh, development. Um, this question of IQ or how you measure cognitive development and the long-term improvements in IQ, a matter that the late James Flynn, who came up with the Flynn effect, has st had studied in, uh, in great detail. Um, it's uh, sufficiently controversial that the chart that I have up there has been taken down in the meanwhile from our world in numbers. Uh, people get themselves fired from academic posts or very easily getting into this question. Even more easy is to be shouted down. Uh, but that doesn't mean that understanding human capabilities is an unimportant thing or that inequality in human capabilities may not be something we should be interested in. Um, here's another uh, question. What about family inequality? The family is the basic unit of society and sort of inseparable from human well-being, I would uh, submit. Um, I show you here some projections from uh, demographers in Japan from a few years ago. By their projections, a Japanese woman born in 1990 was on track to have about a 40% chance, slightly less than a 40% chance of ending life with no biological children and a slightly over 50-50 chance of ending her uh, lifetime with uh, no biological grandchildren. Does that inequality matter? Do other inequalities in family structure or family condition matter? Um, worth asking the question, certainly not going to answer that here, but maybe a matter first discussion in the future. Um, finally, I would like to simply mention, simply to flag, to set down a marker on the distinction between poverty and misery. Uh, this is a distinction that I think was uh, self-evident even to 10-year-olds you know, and 12-year-olds back in Victorian uh, England, but I think has been lost to the modern sensibility. Um, degradation and misery are possible even at relatively high levels of income. And thinking about how to avoid misery what are the aspects of misery? What are the aspects of degradation in the human condition is something that uh, may be an invitation for a very much larger research project in the future. Thank you very much.
please submit questions using the hashtag Cato events. You can do that on the website X, formerly known as Twitter. You can also submit questions on Facebook, YouTube, or directly on Cato's website if that is where you are streaming this. And we'll get to as many as possible. Our first question is two parts, and it's submitted by David Simon, Julian Simon's son. Uh, focusing on causes rather than consequences, do you contend that less human well-being inequality, globally or otherwise, produces more absolute rather than relative human well-being for all, and particularly for the poorest and least free? If so, why? And second part, wouldn't Americans be better off, for example, if countries like Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran that threaten American national security and interests were poorer and thus were less able to develop weapons to use against the U.S. as well as against their own people. Uh, so for the first part, <clears throat> I would say that the reason why we were focusing on inequality was that we wanted to know how broadly shared the improvements were. There wasn't a normative statement in whether or not we cared about the inequality in of itself, it was more of a factual positive statement that we wanted to know if everyone in the world got better off. Now, with regards to the second half of the question, this is where my libertarian leanings are gonna come very clear. I don't really care about countries. Uh, countries are largely irrelevant for me. I care about individuals. So if Russians are living under uh, an oppressive regime, the best thing we should do is let Russians come to a place where uh, their property rights are protected, where their dignity is respected by law, uh, and that there isn't an abusive dictator in charge. Ergo, let people come to where human flourishing and progress is encouraged through institutions. That would be my answer, obliquely, but still an answer. And to add to that, that we did cite in the paper some literature showing that inequality itself doesn't seem to cause unhappiness. It depends on the perceived causes of the inequality. If it's perceived that it was attained through unjust or corrupt means, that causes less happiness. If, however, it is seen as a promising sign that upward mobility is possible, that actually can coincide with increasing uh, happiness. Nick, do you have any thoughts on this? Sure. Um, I wanted to um, give a shout out to David's father, Julian Simon. Julian was a friend of mine, uh, actually a comrade in arms. And without taking you on too long a stroll down memory lane, I'll mention that in early 1982, Julian and your humble servant and the late professor Jacqueline Kaysen uh, were in the lion's den of the State Department arguing against the assembled contingent of State Department population controllers that overpopulation was not the problem facing uh, the world for the future. And Julian was a stellar in demolishing uh, some of these nostrums. Uh, I would say that um, I'm not sure that an inequality index is the best way to examine the question of conflict between states. Um, I have a sick fascination with, uh, with North Korea, with the DPRK, and with a GDP of approximately zero, they managed to threaten not just their neighbors in the south, but increasingly to put a capability together for attempting to point a nuclear pistol at Uncle Sam. Um, I, th I think the world is a dangerous place, and looking at... Uh, Looking at statecraft on a state versus state basis or uh, other bases like that probably can get you further than for the inequality index, which wasn't really designed to get at this. Uh, we have an, a, question, a question from Anonymous asking, and I think this is mainly aimed at Vincent because it's a methodology question. If you are trying to measure welfare, it seems that an increase in life expectancy from 35 to 36 would be a larger increase in welfare than a rise from 85 to 86. It may be easier to achieve, but I think it brings a bigger marginal gain in welfare. 
Uh, the answer to that is that uh, you have to think about it kind of as a technological frontier. Uh, if you're uh, at a very low level of income, the effect of an extra dollar of income is probably going to push you up a lot in terms of life expectancy, for example, uh, regardless of your, level of, uh, of your level of skills. But if you're trying to push the frontier in a place like, say, Canada, uh, you are going to have to spend a tremendous amount of resources to push that frontier. So the amount of expenditures and effort that go into pushing the frontier at the top is much more impressive. So that's why we want to give a higher weight to these achievements, not because they're not important to the poor, but because they're harder to achieve and, uh, and that actually has an effect on the way the index is generated, is by definition, we are making the world, so if you compare, for example, the HDI with ours, our results, are, our index offers lower values. And not only does it offer lower values, it offers higher inequality because we are weighing down poorer countries. Us finding greater inequality, greater equality, sorry, with the index we created is probably the strongest statement about a fairer world today, methodologically from the vantage point of how we constructed it, than any other measures. Finding it with our measure is essentially guaranteeing that you would find it with all weaker measures. Uh, ergo, that's why I think it's a strong statement. Uh, even though the question has a correct point about uh, at the margin, an extra year matters probably more for a person at 35 than a person at 85, but that's not what we were trying to capture essentially in that index. Uh, we have another question from Anonymous asking, did the authors consider leisure time as a component of well-being? An increase in income due to increased work hours may not lead to improved well-being in certain circumstances, thus negating the benefits of a decrease in the inequality gap. And we considered uh, a lot of different potential components. We were limited by uh, which components were available with data for many countries over many years, uh, which helped narrow our options and helped us settle upon our choices. I think leisure time may have actually been one of the indicators that we initially considered, but the data wasn't there. Yeah, there was an issue with in terms of years and coverage that we couldn't employ it in a way that would make the index speak to a large number of countries. But there are other works. For example, Nick Crafts of Warwick University has a paper in Economica. What, what he's doing, he's checking the share of our lifetimes spent in leisurely pursuit. So he's not just considering what share of a year you're not working, he's considering what share of a year you're not working and how many years you're not working over your entire lifetime. And if you actually check, people have made fun, for example, of John Maynard Keynes for saying that uh, it, the day is not far away where we only work 15 hours a week. Uh, if you average from Kraft's result, we are actually very close over lifetime today of working 15 hours a week on average throughout our lifetimes. There are periods where we're completely inactive but the reality is in Western countries, uh, this greater amount of leisure is very visible, and you can see that it's fallen. Uh, the, the level of leisure we enjoy is, is immensely greater, and it's not just he did it for the UK, but if you check for multiple countries, Canada, France, uh, you will see the same trend. And if you look at other data, countries for which we have some historical data, Turkey being one of them, uh, you find the similar trend. They're just at a higher level because they're lower on the development scale, but you're finding the same common trend uh, across countries. The only problem is we can't, we have maybe in terms of high quality data, maybe like 100 countries we could use rather than 150, 160, and that would have cut the data set in size. I'd like to offer what I hope is a friendly slight amendment to that. Uh, most of which I agree with. Um, back shortly after the end of the Civil War, when I was trained in economics, uh, we were taught in our micro courses 
that uh, there was work and there was leisure. Um, leisure, I th I'm not sure, is a great way of describing what we're getting at in terms of non-work time, free, free time. Because the history of the world leisure, as in Joseph Pieper and leisure as a foundation of civilization, is the notion that of free time that's actually being used for something that is either restorative or uplifting. Um, there is an awful lot of free time in the United States today that is being used for neither of those things, as some of my homework on men without work has uh, tried to show. Um, also, one of the kind of curious things that we see in the United States, and I don't know whether this is a generalizable uh, uh, finding or not, and I'm thinking back to work by like Aguilar and Hearst and people like that, is that the, um, the groups with the highest earnings in the United States are, tend to be the groups with the least free time, and the groups with the lower earnings tend to be the groups with the most free time. They, instead of a positive correlation, they found a negative correlation. And be curious to know if that's true in other places, and if so, why and where. Uh, we have a question for uh, Nick from someone called Dr. Nadell. He asks, how do you explain the differences in cognitive ability um, across time and the globe, the, the Flynn effect? And um, before you get to your answer, one thing that occurs to me is just huge improvements in maternal nutrition and things like taking folic acid during pregnancy and children having better nutrition uh, when they're very young and their brains are developing? I'm, I'm not the guy who's going to be able to explain this. Uh, I may be the guy who can point out some of the findings that people have made. I'm doing homework right now, for example, on, uh, on China, on the terrain of knowledge and skills in China. And uh, one recent finding for China I find very intriguing, worth examining further. Uh, Scott Roselle at Stanford, uh, the uh, intrepid economist who has been uh, mapping out uh, rural conditions in China, has come up with the finding that uh, cognitive testing in rural China shows a huge gap with urban China, a really huge gap. Same people, huge gap between urban and rural areas. Um, it sounds like that's something that could be explained by nutrition and development and uh, other sorts of developmental factors, but um, I, uh, I report, uh, I don't have a good explanation for this. We have a question for Vincent from uh, Louis-Philippe Noel. How do you make the case for your students to teach economics broadly for the benefits of the individual on different issues? Uh, that's a really broad question. Uh, so when I teach econ, I'm generally much more of a theoretician. Uh, it's when I communicate, so I try to teach my students price theory in the UCLA, George Mason, Virginia School tradition. And, but when I go out and talk to wider audiences, then I try to communicate the deeper philosophical point without having to retort to theory. I much more what you could try to consider as like moral intuitions that are then illustrated with price theory. Uh, that's how I would go about it. That seems it's not my greatest response I've provided to a question like that. It's a really deep question that I would need the time to think about the answer more precisely. Uh, it's a bit more of a general question. Um, back to inequality. Anonymous asks, is there a link between inequality and GDP per capita? I think what they're getting at with that question is, um, is there a link between growing prosperity and increased inequality? I think that there is a set of condition under which it could be. Uh, but that condition are, these conditions are not the ones that are generally emphasized by people. So people have a, that are generally will be advanced. So if you pick up 
the horrible work of Thomas Piketty. I'm taking a very strong value judgment here, largely because I've replicated his work and there's so many errors that it's insanely sloppy. I had to take a swipe. It's really a, like a hobby of mine at this point. Uh, you will find that it's a mechanical explanation where higher income inequality creates uh, uh, societies that are more unfair will have less human capital accumulation and in turn less growth. But there is a richer argument, and actually some of it comes from left-leaning economists like Sam Bowles, on the line that societies that perceive inequalities as having emerged out of people seeking privileges from the law or from rent-seeking processes, they perceive those inequalities as being unjust, non-meritorious, non-related to skills, and the reaction that people have to this is that they become aggressive, there is less social trust, and then we expend resources trying to neutralize potential threats, and these resources are not available for investments. This is a context in which inequality could be detrimental to, you, to human progress and economic development broadly defined, but in instances like this, it is, it is a secondary effect of bad institutions. Uh, the effect of bad institutions then on human progress happens through inequality rather than happens because of inequality. All right, and the default state of humanity is both you know, poverty, incredible poverty beyond what most people can imagine today, and also equality, because that poverty was universally shared. So I think that it is true that at least with any initial rise in prosperity or an improvement in conditions, since it won't be uniformly shared, there will be some increase in inequality. Uh, Nick, do you have any thoughts on this question? I guess it kind of gets back to Joseph Schumpeter and uh, his capitalism, socialism, and democracy. You have a capitalist system that is so fantastically successful, it becomes prosperous enough to uh, be able to finance a class of intelligentsia who uh, focus on, uh, <laughs> happen to have a kind of like a cultural problem with the foundations of capitalism. Our last question comes from Anonymous and asks, why is it easier to complain about what goes wrong than celebrate the huge, in all caps, progress we've made? It doesn't sell newspapers. <laughs> Visit humanprogress.org if you are interested in a more positive or realistic evidence-based view of the state of the world. Um, do you have any thoughts? <laughs> All right. Uh, actually, we probably have time for one last question then. Uh, oh, I will read a note that uh, David sent back in response to everyone's answers. David says, I fully applaud Nick's and Chelsea's answers, applaud the immigration aspect of Vincent's answer, very much appreciate Nick's additional kind words and comments about my father, and remember my father's appreciation for Nick's great work. Oh, that's nice. Um, oh, actually, here's one last question. By David Ellison, does the panel agree with the data shown in the myth of American inequality by Phil Graham, Robert, uh, Eklund, and John Early. Uh, there's a oh, series of different uh, points in that. There's a series of different graphs. I'm not sure which one you're referring in general, but we'll talk to the general spirit graph that we are overstating the increase in inequality in the United States, and the answer is yes. There is a much, uh, uh, there's a crazily overstated increase, uh, and the part that I think is much more damaging to this argument, it's not just that it's uh, increasing, it's when you look at the, the reasons behind some of the increase. So work by David Card, for example, shows that a share of the increase is because immigrants come to the United States. Immigrants have uh, different earnings distributions than Native Americans, even though they earn much more than where they were before. Uh, bringing them here, uh, allowing them to come here actually increases inequality in the US, but if you're a good economist, you would realize, and a good statistician, that you're actually lowering global inequality by letting them come to a place that offers them so much greater earnings. So there's reasons for the increase in inequality that's observed in the United States that goes to the point of the myth of American equality by 
Graham Eklund and I'm, I was going to say Tolleson, but it's not Tolleson. Early. So early, thank you. Uh, the reason why it speaks to that is that we do not understand that there are such things as good inequalities. Letting people come to rich places in that case uh, is not a form of inequality we should condemn. It's one that we're, we're just, we're being fooled by a statistical artifice rather than something meaningful. I think we've got a misdiagnosis on our hands big time in the United States today. What's ailing us is rising misery in certain ways. The deaths of despair, the opioid catastrophe, um, certain uh, stagnation or drops in life expectancy. Um, we're calling misery inequality and those are not the same things. I think that's a great point to end on. Thank you for joining us for today's policy forum.